Is this great literature, I wonder? I emptied the ashtray, walked about, took the cups, put them in the sink, wetted the kitchen cloth, sprayed the table with detergent, and was washing when Ingvar came in with a carrier bag in each hand. He set them down and began to unpack. First, what we would have for lunch, which he laid out on the worktop. Four vacuum-packed salmon steaks, a bag of potatoes stained dark with soil, a head of cauliflower and a packet of frozen beans, then all the other goods, some of which he stowed in the fridge, some in the cupboard next to it. A 1.5-litre bottle of Sprite, a 1.5-litre bottle of CB beer, a bag of oranges, a carton of milk, a carton of orange juice, a loaf. This is taken from a book whose addictive attention to detail and sheer convincingness has puzzled even some of the critics who admire it. It's from A Death in the Family, the first volume of Karl Ove Knausgaard's six-part sequence of autobiographical novels, My Struggle, Min Kamp, published in Norwegian in 2009, it was translated into English by Don Bartlett in 2012. I can't believe that in Norwegian, this is not just as it appears in its English translation, excessively circumstantial, pedantically particular, utterly inert. Except the that stained dark with soil looks like an obstinately poetic detail, maybe. Yet it seems to me an example of how novels have, for almost exactly three centuries, seized our attention and compelled our belief. These sentences exhibit some of the powers of the novel, which is the overall title of my series of lectures. We know that the book from which this passage is taken is autobiographical. We know it from the fact that its narrator shares its author's name. We probably also know from the much-reported fact uh, that it aroused the fury or excited the distress of several family members and ex-partners who are characters in Knausgaard's story. We know that frisson of revelation in the responses to one of these examples of autofiction from other examples of what has become to uh, uh, have that label, autofiction, a word whose earliest use, the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, records from 1976, but which has only become commonplace in the last couple of decades. Accomplished British examples include Edward St. Aubyn's Patrick Melrose Quintet, published between 1992 and 2012, or more recently, Rachel Cuss' trilogy of novels, Outline, Transit, and Kudos, completed in 2018. These books that, in their detailed accounts of encounters at literary festivals, 
or difficulties with builders who are improving your recently purchased London flat seemed designed, really, to prompt the thought, this must have happened to the author. Knausgaard's six-book sequence is an important part of this literary phenomenon. The passage I've just shown you, and that's up there still, is taken from part two of A Death in the Family. Carl Ove, having been told of his father's death, travels with his brother Ingvar to Kristiansand on the southern tip of Norway, where his father's been living. He had become an unrescuable alcoholic who'd retreated from the world to the house of Karlove's grandmother. It was she who found him one day sitting in the armchair, dead. The book is about his death and the memories it stirs in the narrator, but also the ghastly business of cleaning up afterwards. The two brothers find that the house, still inhabited by his skeletal, confused grandmother, is in a state of utter squalor. They set about to try to clean it up, and we go through the cleaning with them. And that process is, for many readers, the most memorable aspect of this book. We get as close to the grot as the narrator does. Here he is, starting on the bathroom and emptying out the wall cupboard. Blades, safety razors, hairpins, several bars of soap, desiccated creams and ointments, a hairnet, aftershave, deodorants, eyeliners, lipsticks, some small cracked powder puffs. Not sure what they were used for, but it must have been something to do with makeup. And hairs, both short curly ones and longer straighter ones. Nail scissors, a roll of plasters, dental floss and combs. Once the cupboard was empty, a yellow, brown, thickish residue was left on the shelf that I decided to wash last of all. The wall tiles beside the toilet seat on which the toilet roll holder was fixed were covered with light brown stains and the floor beneath was sticky and these seemed to me to be most in need of attention. So I squirted a line of jiff over the tiles and began to scrub them methodically from the ceiling right down to the floor. Firstly, the right-hand wall, then the mirror wall, then the bathtub wall, and lastly, around the door. And so it goes on. How do we know that this narrative is actually fiction? Knausgaard always refers to his books in this sequence as novels. How do we know that each volume of My Struggle is a novel? that the whole is what we might have been taught to call a roman fleuve, a sequence of connected works of fiction. One reviewer, a fellow novelist, complained about Knausgaard's merciless specificity. And you can see what he means from these passages that I've been reading. But this merciless specificity is exactly what shows it to be fiction, the people are real, the story is true, but the detail has to be invented. Knausgaard didn't keep a journal or a diary or a record. He wrote these books from memory. 
he must have had to invent the minutiae. What is most like fact in the book is actually what is likeliest to be fictional. Of course, death, the death of the narrator's father, makes this mere factuality dramatically expressive. Death requires the gruesome attention to detail because there has to be a clear-up, but also death requires, imposes the numbness that gives the factual detail its voltage. It's crucial to Knausgaard's method that the books in this sequence do not have chapters. Uh, I said earlier that these passages are taken from part two of A Death in the Family, and this first book in Knausgaard's sequence is the only one that is divided into parts at all, part one and part two, that's it. Um, Otherwise, the only divisions in the text are the frequent but entirely irregular little white spaces separating one sequence of events or thoughts from the next one. Here you can stop if you want, put the book down for the night if you're reading it. The rest of the books in the sequence, as I've said, all five remaining volumes are entirely undivided except for those little white spaces. When I interviewed Knausgaard in 2016 about the second volume in the series, A Man in Love, as it's titled in English, he told me how important this undividedness was, that wherever and whenever he was in the narrative, wherever and whenever you were as a reader, it is always, as he said, here and now. There's no, as it were, overall map or diagram that you can have of the narrative. It's a good quiz question, actually. How many chapterless novels can you think of? I'm going to turn now to another entirely chapterless novel for an example of factuality that the Knausgaard aficionado might recognise. I first got three of the seamen's chests, which I'd broken open and emptied, and lowered them down upon my raft. The first of these I filled with provision, viz, bread, rice, three Dutch cheeses, five pieces of dried goat's flesh, which we lived much upon, and a little remainder of European corn, which had been laid by for some fowls, which we brought to sea with us, but the fowls were killed. There had been some barley and wheat together, but to my great disappointment, I found afterwards that the rats had eaten or spoiled it all. As for liquors, I found several cases of bottles belonging to our skipper, in which were some cordial waters, and in all, about five or six gallons of rack, These I stowed by themselves, there being no need to put them into the chest, nor any room for them. Perhaps even those of you who haven't actually read the novel from which this this is taken will be able to guess what it is. It's uh, 
from Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe, first published in 1719. Arak, by the way, uh, Rack, by the way, is Arak, which is an al- kind of alcohol um, brewed, I think, from sugarcane. Um, and even if you haven't read the novel, you probably know what's going on. The shipwrecked, shipwrecked Crusoe, the only survivor, is salvaging from the wreck of his ship everything that he might be able to use to survive on the island, his island, as he comes to see it. You'll notice that this seems a single sentence, and for connoisseurs of narrative style, it's important that it features uh, uh, Defoe's uh, favourite punctuation mark, the semicolon, which allows his narrators to launch out on a sentence and then if they think of anything else, qualify it by simply adding on another bit. Somebody once said to me, Defoe's, uh, the, the sentences of Defoe's narrators are rather like his protagonists. They set off in search of a conclusion they have not yet quite uh, uh, seen. Um, but actually, this isn't a single sentence. It's, it's only half the sentence, I, thus the ellipsis at the beginning of it. Um, like Knausgaard's narrator, Defoe's narrator, Crusoe, offers a list as the bare index of reality. And there's a lot more like this in the novel. Chapterless novels are a breed apart. Knausgaard shares his habit of declining to divide up his narratives with this leading pioneer of the nascent English novel, Daniel Defoe, who indeed didn't know when he wrote Robinson Crusoe that he exactly was writing novels. And and because of this undividedness, the fact that there are no chapters, no uh, uh, sections of any kind in the novel, teaching a class, one of Defoe's novels, is always a kind of very disrupted experience as the people in the room, the students, try to find whatever passage is being discussed in their various differently paginated modern editions. The novelist has given them and us no landmarks. Everything is the flow of the protagonist's recollections. Here is the title page of the first edition of Robinson Crusoe. This is actually the um, British Library copy. Um, And you'll see, very importantly, that Defoe's own name is entirely absent from this title page, um, which announces the book, the account that follows, as if it were Robinson Crusoe's own memoir, The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, of York Mariner, who lived eight and twenty years all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America near the mouth of the great river of Orunoke, having been cast on shore by shipwreck, wherein all the men perished but himself, with an account how he was at last estrangely delivered by pirates, written by himself. It's quite possible, incidentally, that this title page was not exactly of Defoe's own devising. But what surely is of his devising is the sense that it is uh, 
presented as a memoir. We might note before we move on that uh, the prominence of one or two sort of code words in that title page. Strange, surprising, uh, um, strangely delivered. Um, these, and it's, it's something I'm going to return to a little bit later, these are actually very important words in, in the narrative, and they're clues as to the fact that Crusoe's narrative, as well as being um, as if factual, is also suffused with um, uh, the narrator's recognition of the strange, surprising workings of providence, of God's will in his adventures and misadventures. The title page is immediately followed by a short preface in which a nameless editor tells us how instructive the book we're about to read is going to be. The editor believes the thing to be a just history of fact. Neither is there any appearance of fiction in it. So it is a history of fact, and thereby lies, uh, in, therein lies the satisfaction that it provides as a work of fiction. It is like fact. For Defoe's heroes, who are also his narrators, Facts are consoling. Facts are what you can grab at, but they're not sufficient of themselves. Here is an extract uh, um, from uh, the part of the narrative where Crusoe recalls the immediate aftermath of his first arrival on the island. And as in the title page, but I think more uh, clearly to the modern reader, you will see that fact and providence are stirred together. I walked about on the shore, lifting up my hands and my whole being, as I may say, wrapped up in a contemplation of my deliverance, making a thousand gestures and motions which I cannot describe, reflecting upon all my comrades that were drowned and that, there should be, and that there should not be one soul saved but myself. For as for them, I never saw them afterwards or any sign of them, except three of their hats, one cap, and two shoes that were not fellows. Crusoe remembers his confusion and tells us how he's inadequate to the task of getting his experience down on the page, as I may say, which I cannot describe. But about something, he can manage to be precise. Three of their hats, one cap, and two shoes that were not fellows. <laughs> that's, that's the brilliance of Robinson Crusoe. He does remember that the two shoes didn't match. Of course, they're remnants of two different drowned men. And you'll see there also that evidence that I referred to earlier of his religious sense of the significance of his fate. Um, deliverance, soul, 
saved um, that vocabulary which is both literal and religious. It's no news that Robinson Crusoe, the novel Robinson Crusoe, shaped later fiction. Only 12 years later, Johann Gottfried Schnabel had coined the word Robinsonada in, in the preface to his utopian fiction, Die Insel Felsenberg. Robinsonada became the English word Robins, Robinsonade, um, although it didn't appear in English until the early 19th century. Here, in rapid review for you, are some Robinsonades. Each age invents its own Robinsonades. Um, here, some little illustrations. Um, uh, the, 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 the first one, the Schweizerische Robinson from 1812, which is uh, the narrative of um, a virtuously religious uh, Swiss family marooned on a desert island having to survive, and it became better known um, uh, to, to us as Swiss Family Robinson, as it was translated as only two years later. These, of course, are not uh, 19th century uh, covers, although the modern version of um, Wiss's novel in German does use a 19th century, original 19th century illustration. Um, this is one of the many uh, early 20th century editions uh, uh, of a perennial favourite uh, for children, the Swiss family Robinson. Uh, some other Robinson aides, uh, once hugely popular, uh, R.M. Ballantyne uh, novel, a Victorian bestseller for boys, The Coral Island, in which three teenage boys are shipwrecked on a desert island and have to escape the threats of sharks. You can see them here with the sharks. Um, cannibals and pirates. Crusoe only had to deal with the last two of those. He didn't have sharks. Um, and then William Golding's frightening 1954 classic, uh, Lord of the Flies. This is the cover, the illustrated cover of the first edition, which is an explicitly sort of a disenchantment, as it were, of the Coral Island story and is, is partly uh, inspired by it. More recently, two more Robinson aides, um, Jem Kurt Sears, 1986, revisiting of Defoe's novel, which is narrated from the point of view of a female castaway, Susan Barton, who encounters a rather sluggish Crusoe and a speechless Friday on the island on which she washes up, and then later, back in London, tries to get somebody called Daniel Defoe to tell her story. Um, characteristically postmodern version in that the, the novel becomes about how narratives get made. And next to it, Margaret Atwood's post-pandemic fable of human meddling, Oryx and Crake, which is also a kind of Robinsonade. It's centred on a, cast, a kind of castaway 
once a genetic engineer who now lives in subtropical loneliness near the beach, surrounded by peaceful but peculiarly uninteresting genetically engineered humanoids, crakers. Um, we keep telling our Robinsonades. The desert island narrative, the survival tale, actually the adventure story itself are all Robinson Crusoe's progeny. Like the best kind of founding text, Robinson Crusoe opens itself to our changing requirements. For us right now, it's evidently a document in the history of colonialism. And Crusoe's subjugation of Friday has become, uh, in most contemporary discussions, its main lesson. But for some readers, and for some writers, Robinson Crusoe, this just history of fact, as it declares itself, has a kind of romance to it. For Charles Dickens, Robinson Crusoe was the elemental novel. Apart from plays by Shakespeare, Robinson Crusoe's the literary work referenced most often in Dickens's fiction. When the ghost of Christmas past in A Christmas Carol returns Scrooge, the aged miser, to his childhood, Scrooge sees the fictions that he once loved come back to the life they once had. To hear Scrooge expending all the earnestness of his nature on such subjects in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, to see his heightened and exciting face would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city indeed. There's the parrot, cried Scrooge, green body and yellow tail with a, a thing like a lettuce growing out of the top of his head. There he is. Poor Robin Crusoe, he called him when he came home again after sailing round the island. Poor Robin Crusoe, where have you been, Robin Crusoe? The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday, running for his life to the little creek. Halloa, hoop, halloo. Then, with a rapidity of transition, very foreign to his usual character, he said in pity for his former self, poor boy, and cried again. Karl Marx may have thought Defoe a kind of celebrant of capitalism. But in hard times, Dickens imagines Defoe's fiction as a kind of escape into the world of imagination for industrial capitalism's enslaved operatives. There was a library in Coketown to which general access was easy. Mr. Gradgrind greatly tormented his mind about what the people read in this library, a point whereon little rivers of tabular statements periodically flowed into the howling ocean of tabular statements, which no diver ever got to any depth in and came up sane. It was a disheartening circumstance, but a melancholy fact that even these readers persisted in wondering they wondered about human nature, human passions, human hopes and fears, the struggles, triumphs and defeats, the cares and joys and sorrows, the lives and deaths of common men and women. They sometimes, after 15 hours' work, 
sat down to read mere fables about men and women more or less like themselves and about children more or less like their own. They took Defoe to their bosoms instead of Euclid and seemed to be on the whole more comforted by Goldsmith than by Cocker. Goldsmith, Dickens is thinking of Goldsmith's novel, 18th century novel, The Vicar of Wakefield, another of his favorites. Cocker is William Cocker, uh, the uh, author of the dauntingly titled textbook, Arithmetic. Robinson Crusoe was just the first of Defoe's novels. Its author discovering the appeal of the fictional memoir and moving on from this tale of adventure to autobiographies of penitent criminals. One of these was Mole Flanders. Mole Flanders is another autobiography, the tale of a woman who falls into crime. Remembering how, as an impoverished young woman, she first gave in to temptation and how she heard the voice of the devil, Mole, our narrator, also recalls some facts. She has uh, tempted uh, a small ch a child who is wearing a necklace she wants to steal into, into an alley. The child had a little necklace on of gold beads, and I had my eye upon that, and in the dark of the alley, I stooped, pretending to mend the child's clog that was loose, and took off her necklace, and the child never felt it, and so led the child on again. Here, I say, the devil put me upon killing the child in the dark alley, that it might not cry, but the very thought frightened me so that I was ready to drop down. But I turned the child about and bade it go back again, for it was not on its way home. The child said so she would, and I went through into Bartholomew Close, and then turned round to another passage that goes into St. John Street, then crossing into Smithfield, went down Chick Lane, and into Field Lane to Hoburn Bridge, when mixing with the crowd of people usually passing there, it was not possible to have been found out. And thus, I enterprised my second sally into the world. In all her fear and confusion, Mole still knows her way through those streets. Her GPS is absolutely tuned. As she looks back on her fall into crime, she can at least be sure of those street names, that precise route that keeps her safe. Though Defoe's authorship of his novels may not have been much known in his lifetime, works like Robinson Crusoe and Mole Flanders were, from the evidence we have, clearly understood to be fiction, fact-like fiction. A couple of his novels, as we now call them, were, however, so like real memoirs that they were actually taken to be such. The title page of one of these, A Journal of the Plague Year, as we now call it, is, is here given alongside that of Mole Flanders. And uh, you'll see A Journal of the Plague Year is written by a citizen who continued all the while in London, never made public before. And it's published in 1722, the same year as Mole Flanders. Um, when A Journal of the Plague Year was published, 
Londoners were fearful of the impending arrival of the plague which had reached the south of France. And there was a flurry of publications about previous experiences of plague and what people had done to try and counter the, counter the uh, pandemic. And these publications included Defoe's fictional narrative, which was duly taken to be a real memoir. When in the 19th century it became clear that Defoe had concocted the whole thing, some critics were appalled. It was fraudulence. Now we're more likely to think that the fabrication of such a convincing document was an admirable fictional achievement. The romantic essayists Hazlitt, Lamb and De Quincey were amongst the first to see literary merit in Defoe's novels, narrated they are in that peculiarly unliterary manner. De Quincey wrote in Blackwood's magazine of how Defoe was the only author known who has so plausibly circumstantiated his false historical records as to make them pass for genuine, even with literary men and critics. He relished Defoe's invention of what he called such little circumstantiations of any character or incident as seen by their apparent inertness of a, sorry, as seen by their apparent inertness of effect to verify themselves. I think this is one of the sort of uh, one of the neatest and best little uh, um, celebrations of Defoe's peculiar fictional talents. For where the reader is told that such a person was the posthumous son of a tanner, that his mother married afterwards a Presbyterian schoolmaster who gave him a smattering of Latin, but the schoolmaster dying of the plague that he was compelled at 16 to enlist for bread, in all this, as there is nothing at all amusing, we conclude that the author could have no reason to detain us with such particulars, but simply because they were true. To invent when nothing at all is gained by inventing, there seems no imaginable temptation. Novels learnt from the beginning to provide the unnecessary particulars that made them seem true. Thus, our next example, which is in some ways um, in the minds of the reading public of the 18th century, is where the 18th century novel really began, does the same thing. The, the, the example is Samuel Richardson's groundbreaking novel, Pamela, published in 1740, which is written in the form of letters, also, pub, is also published anonymously, as if it were a real collection of documents. These letters are from a 15-year-old servant girl, Pamela, to her parents, and they're introduced, like Robinson Crusoe, by a preface from a nameless editor recommending the moral tendency of what, what will follow. And it, the, the novel is subtitled Virtue Rewarded. And Pamela's virtue is her, her goodness, but also her virginity. She must defend herself from the sexual advances of her master, Mr. B., after, after the death of her mistress, Mr. B's mother. The virtuous heroine 
worries a good deal about her soul, but of course she also worries about her clothes. Since my last, that's her last letter, since my last, my master gave me more fine things. He called me up to my old lady's closet and pulling out her drawers, he gave me two suits of fine Flanders laced headcloths three pair of fine silk shoes, two hardly the worst, and just fit for me, for my old lady had a very little foot, and several ribbons and topknots of all colours, and four pair of fine white cotton stockings, and three pair of fine silk ones, and two pair of rich stays, and a pair of rich silver buckles in one pair of the shoes. With psychological exactitude, Richardson has his heroine so fussed by all this stuff that she cannot notice what her new master, who is her would-be seducer, is really up to. For even some of the 18th century readers who were gripped by Pamela, which was a bestseller, such domestic detail was vulgar and absurd and utterly unliterary. Yet it would be taken up by the subgenre that gave fiction new prestige in the next century, the 19th century, the historical novel. The historical novel's attention to little facts learnt from the likes of Pamela is still familiar to us. And I've only got time for one passing example, but it's from one from a book which might be familiar to us. And I, and I, I append uh, the extract with a quotation from a review. This is a, from a review of Hilary Mantel's Bringing, Bring Up the Bodies, uh, published in The New Yorker in May 2012, in which the critic James Wood praised the novelistic intelligence, as he called it, with which Mantell fictionalised her facts. And the first paragraph here is a quotation from Bring Up the Bodies, and the second is back to Wood's review. This season, young men carry their effects in soft, pale leather bags in imitation of the agents for the Fugger Bank who travel all over Europe and set the fashion. The bags are heart-shaped, and so to him, it always looks as if they're going wooing, but they swear they're not. Nephew Richard Cromwell sits down and gives the bags a sardonic glance. Do you know if Mantell has manufactured or borrowed from the record this information about the fashionable fugger bag? In some sense, it doesn't matter, because the writer has made a third category of the reality, the plausibly hypothetical. It's what Aristotle claimed was the difference between the historian and the poet. The former describes what happened and the latter what might happen. James Wood's question is rhetorical, but I wondered about the answer, so I confess I asked Hilary Mantel. And indeed, she tells me the information about the 16th century man bag was recovered from the archive, not invented. And as she said when replying to my inquiry, doesn't the naming of the banking house, the Fugger Bank, suggest to the reader that this is fact, not fiction, so to speak? In the early decades of the novel, there was an important word for what it was about a novel that made it convincing. That word was probable. 
Um, in the 1750s, when John Cleland, author of the infamously pornographic novel Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, uh, celebrated the new type, uh, the new species of fiction, as he called it, being written by people like Smollett, Fielding, Henry Fielding, and Sarah Fielding, he declared that it was familiar, practical, and probable to be met with in the course of common life. Probable to be met with. The earliest sustained account of the rise of the novel is Clara Reeve's The Progress of Romance, published in 1785. Reeve, very interesting writer, herself a novelist, and The Progress of Romance is set up in a series of dialogues between two women, Euphrasia and Sophronia, who love novels, and a man, Hortensius, who's very sus suspicious of this new genre, and he gets convinced um, by the two women in the course of the debates. Um, and uh, uh, this is how uh, Reeve defines the novel in her book. Um, the novel gives a familiar relation of such things as pass every day before our eyes, such as may happen to our friend or to ourselves, and the perfection of it is to represent every scene in so easy and natural a manner as to make them appear so probable as to deceive us into a persuasion, at least while we're reading, that all is real, probable again. By the late 18th century, there was a play, pl plentiful supply of novels that took pleasure um, in transcending the probable. We call them Gothic novels, and I'm going to be talking about those in the third of my lectures. It's notable that the probable word recurs when Jane Austen in Northanger Abbey, when in Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, Henry Tilney confronts the heroine, Catherine Morland, with the folly of her Gothic-inspired fantasy. She's got a fantasy that his father, General Tilney, has murdered his dead wife. Dear Miss Morland, consider the dreadful nature of the suspicions you've entertained. What have you been judging from? Remember the country and the age in which we live. Remember that we are English, that we are Christians. Consult your own understanding, your own sense of the probable, your own observation of what is passing around you. Does our education prepare us for such atrocities? Do our laws connive at them? Could they be perpetrated without being known in a country like this? where social and literary intercourse is on such a footing, where every man is surrounded by a neighbourhood of voluntary spies and where roads and newspapers lay everything open. Dearest Miss Morland, what ideas have you been admitting? Consult your own sense of the probable. It's almost like Austen's motto for any reader of novels and certainly for any good readers of her novels. Ian McEwan chose this very passage as the epigraph for his novel Atonement, a novel whose protagonist is misled by her own capacity for fiction-making to turn what she's seen into what she imagines. Forget the probable, and disaster beckons. So actually, the postmodernist novel continues to be fascinated by factual minutiae, as fascinated as the first pioneers of the English novel. McEwen is well known for glutting us on detail. Uh, and his 2005 novel, Saturday, 
is uh, uh, particularly well known for doing this. Whole rallies of a squash game, every incision or suture of a brain operation. Here is the protagonist, Henry Perrone, a neurosurgeon who rather fancies himself as a cook, uh, making uh, a meal. He's cleaning up the kitchen, wiping his... And, and it's important to know that while he's doing this, the television in his cavernous London kitchen is running footage of the military build-up to the invasion of Iraq. He's cleaning up the kitchen, wiping his mess from the central island into a large bin and scrubbing the chopping boards under running water. Then it's time to tip the boiling water off the skates and mussels into the casserole. When that's done, he is now, he reckons, about two and a half litres of bright orange stock, which he'll cook for another five minutes. Just before dinner, he'll reheat it and simmer the clams, monkfish, mussels and prawns in it for ten minutes. They'll eat the stew with brown bread, salad, and red wine. After New York, there's the Kuwait-Iraq border and military trucks moving in convoy along a desert road and our lads kipping down by the tracks of their tanks, then eating bangers next morning from their mess tins. He takes two bags of mash from the bottom of the fridge and empties them into a salad tosser. He runs the cold tap over the leaves, an officer, barely in his 20s, is standing outside his tent, pointing with a stick at a map on an easel. Perone isn't tempted to disable the mute. These items from the front have a cheerful, censored air that lowers his spirits. He spins the salad and tips it into the bowl. Oil, lemon, pepper and salt he'll throw on later. There's cheese and fruit for pudding. There's something deliberately irritating about this, I think. It's free and direct style, filtered through Perone's consciousness, and he's just too pleased with every aspect of his preparation. His complacency has to be well established in order to be threatened. The interleaving of the scenes from a coming war is appropriately jolting, mocking even. But he's a descendant of Defoe's protagonists. When confusion threatens, you can cling to the details. What we've come to call cuisine has attracted the satirical attention of quite a few late 20th and early 21st century novelists. Here is Patrick Bateman, narrator, but definitely not hero, of Bret Easton Ellis' 1991 novel, American Psycho, in a New York restaurant with some characterless fellow yuppies convinced that the waitress is flirting with him. You can never know, by the way, if this kind of thing is so because the narrative allows no perspective beyond Bateman's self-regard. She laughs sexily when I order, as an appetizer, the monkfish and squid ceviche with golden caviar. Gives me a stare so steamy, so penetrating when I order the Gravlax pot pie with green tomatillo sauce that I have to look back at the pink Bellini in the tall champagne flute with a concerned, deadly serious expression so as not to let her think I'm too interested. Price orders the tapas and then the venison with yogurt sauce and fiddlehead ferns with mango slices. McDermott orders the sashimi with goat cheese and then the smoked duck with endive and maple syrup. Van Patten has the scalloped sausage and the grilled salmon with raspberry vinegar and guacamole. Could, do these dishes exist? I actually googled fiddlehead ferns and there indeed 
was footage of, quote, the furled fronds of a young fern harvested for use as a vegetable being sautéed in front of me. Notoriously, the most frequent details in American Psycho are the details of the designer clothes of his triumphantly superficial, massively overpaid friends and of the killing and dismembering of his many victims, mostly women. The latter descriptions are often unreadable. But actually, both these accumulations of detail become increasingly fantastic and incredible. Such catalogues as Bateman's are another version of the stuff of fact-like fiction. We've already seen the fact-like title page of Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year. No wonder that it was mistaken for what it pretended to be. Here, in a, in a modern reprinting, I'm afraid, is uh, an example of the facts that went into that narrative. Defoe provided his readers with statistical tables of the impact of the plague, taken from the so-called bills of mortality published by London parishes and reproduced them in what, he call, what we call his novel. There is the truth of it, week by week, how many people die in what places. And what does HF, Defoe's narrator is called HF, what does HF say in the face of this? He tells us how the living, delirious with fear, would throw, throw themselves into the plague pits in which the dead were being buried. It is impossible to say anything that is able to give a true idea of it to those who did not say, see it other than this, that it was indeed very, very, very dreadful and such as no tongue can express. And the verys are italicised. Very, very, very dreadful. Uh, you can see why that was once thought to be bad writing and now seems like great writing. Facts make narratives convincing, but also characters and narrators clutch at facts when their own powers of understanding or explanation are not to be trusted. From Defoe to now, the novel has shown this clutching. My last passage is the last paragraph of Kazuo Ishiguro's brilliant, I think, 2005 novel, Never Let Me Go. It's narrated by Kathy H., a human clone living in a just slightly different version of England in the 1990s. She and her fellow clones have been created in order to supply organs for transplant surgery for the benefit of the rest of us. Before she does this and completes, that's a euphemism for is killed, she's employed as a carer, another euphemism, tending others who are in the processes, process of donation. One of these, Tommy, has recently completed. Kathy H. drives around England doing her caring, one day arrives in Norfolk and stops somewhere she's never been before. And I'll just read it. it, it it's, it's, the, it's a passage, it take, covers two slides, but uh, I'll read it to you. I found I was standing before acres of ploughed earth, there was a fence keeping me from stepping into the field with two lines of barbed wire. And I could see how this fence and the cluster of three or four trees above me were the only things breaking the wind for miles. All along the fence, especially along the lower line of wire, all sorts of rubbish had caught and tangled. 
It was like the debris you get on a seashore. The wind must have carried some of it for miles and miles before coming up against these trees and these two lines of wire. Up in the branches of the trees, too, I could see flapping about torn plastic sheeting and bits of old carrier bags. That was the only time as I stood there looking at that strange rubbish, feeling the wind coming across those empty fields that I started to imagine just a little fantasy thing. Because this was Norfolk, after all, and it was only a couple of weeks since I'd lost him. I was thinking about the rubbish, the flapping plastic in the branches, the shoreline of odd stuff caught along the fencing, and I half closed my eyes and imagined this was the spot where everything I'd lost since my childhood and had washed up, and I was now standing here in front of it, and if I waited long enough, a tiny figure would appear on the horizon across the field and gradually get larger until I'd see it was Tommy and he'd wave, maybe even call. The fantasy never got beyond that. I didn't let it. And though the tears rolled down my face, I wasn't sobbing or out of control. I just waited a bit, then turned back to the car to drive off to wherever, wherever it was I was supposed to be. Now Scard's potential fictional alter ego, sorry, Knausgaard's fictional alter ego facing his father's death. Defoe's resourceful record makers in the face of potential extinction. Ishiguru's parentless young woman with little time, little life left. We believe all of them because of what they cannot say and what they can still manage to notice. Thank you. Professor Mullen, thank you very much for a fascinating lecture. It has um, provoked a number of questions. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping we'll be able to get through most of them, but we'll see how we get on. There are two related ones first. Um, would you say all convincing fiction has to have a very factual and informative style? With Knausgaard and Defoe, the writing seems almost like stream of consciousness. What is your opinion? And related to that, sorry, I'm just going down. Um, it was a question about Ulysses. In Ulysses, a fiction full of detail is, sorry, excuse me, is Ulysses a fiction full of detail convincing fiction? And have Defoe, Swift, or Stern had a lasting influence on such 20th century texts? Gosh. Yeah, so they're two big ones. Did you want me to... Uh, well, let's, yeah, tell me the first one again. Does, do, do, is that, do all novels have to have a sort of... All convincing fiction, does it need to have a very factual and informative style? With Knausgaard and Defoe, the writing right. almost seems like stream of consciousness. No, I don't think all novels have to uh, at all. I think that um, I was, I've been trying to illustrate, I suppose, something that um, is there in the early decades of the novel, which continues to be a fascination for novelists. But it's not, as it were, uh, a compulsory element of fiction. Um, and uh, there are... There are novels, as we'll discover in the third of these series, um, which take place in fantasy zones, <laughs> which are not kind of factually circumstantiated, as De Quincey would say, and involve supernatural 
agencies and beings. Um, so uh, this isn't a sort of compulsory menu or agenda for fiction. However, it is really striking that when novels internalize some of those the novels that you mentioned, you mentioned Joyce's Ulysses, but you know some of other early 20th century modernist novels like those of Virginia Woolf, when they internalize, when they give us a stream of consciousness, they also need to have their factual structure. And you'll remember that how Joyce's novel gives us, as it were, the consciousness of, in some ways, three characters. But it also gives us the smell of breakfast, the sound of a cat. And for the first time ever in uh, fiction in English, the experience of going to the lavatory, too. <laughs> so um, it's full of names, it's full of quiddities, as they're sometimes called. Um, and one could say the same thing about uh, Mrs. Dalloway or, or um, To the Lighthouse. So it's not compulsory, but uh, it's something that novelists can never completely get away from. Thank you. Um, another um, audience member has asked, is it important to distinguish between fact and fiction? autobiography slash truth and invention. Are these such binary opposites? Hmm. Uh, well, they're not, they're not binary opposites. Uh, um, uh, but at the same time, I think it can be a truism to say that, um, and, 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 and an empty truism, to say that all supposedly true narratives, that memoirs or works of history are in some ways also fictions. Um, it's true, but I think it's trivially true often. Um, it's absolutely uh, uh, fundamental to the experience of reading Knausgaard's um, autofiction, and that's where I started, that... Um, we believe that although, as I said, the detail has to be made up, the events, as far as he can remember them, are truthfully remembered. And, of course, that's a problematic confidence he's managed to give to uh, the reader because, as those relatives and acquaintances who've challenged his account have said, it may seem to be true, but some of it isn't true, or it's not true to my perception. Um, uh, it's the will to and the effort at truth that we believe, rather than the infallibility of memory itself. There's an e extraordinary thing said at the beginning of uh, a work which is, in some ways, the founding text of European autobiography, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confessions, um, published in the late 18th century. And he says, in his absolutely unironical Rousseau way, that um, everything that follows is true. 
absolutely everything is true and he will challenge anybody who doubts any of it. And yet, within about a page, there is a footnote telling you about the factual error that he's made. Um, But you know what he means. What he means is that as far as he was concerned, as far as the effort of his will and memory and conscience was concerned, it is true, even if actually the memory is fallible. We have a couple of questions about um, form and typography, okay. if I may. Um, the first question is, do we know if Defoe's punctuation is authorial or the compositors? And then another audience member has asked about his use of capitals. Why does he sometimes use capital letters? Okay. Well, the second one is easier, so I'll do that first, <laughs> which is just that, um, um, that it was quite conventional in the early 18th century and before to capitalise most nouns. Um, but it was also a form of emphasis, so it was complic- it was diff- it's difficult, because so sometimes important <laughs> verbs will be capitalised, for instance, in order to emphasise them, but surrounded by nouns, which, as in German to this day, um, capitalises, uh, that's a language that capitalises nouns, and that convention disappears in the course of the 18th century, um, but it's still strong with Defoe. As to do we know that whether his punctuation was uh, um, authorial or not. That's a cracking question, <laughs> um, uh, which I, I don't think that any scholar that I know of has really researched Defoe's punctuation and those texts over which he clearly did have a good deal of control. So, for instance, he wrote works of, he published works of history where it's clear that he was absolutely on top of the text right into the moment of its production, because it was a high-status thing to do, to write history, whereas these novels, as we call them, were written to make money. They were not high literary productions. However, I would just say this, um, and and I say it with regard to some other writers where this debate is interesting, like a favourite novelist of mine who was there in the lecture, Jane Austen. Um, People ask, was her was the punctuation of her novels authorial or done in uh, the print shop or done by the publisher? And and the answer would be that in both those cases, the punctuation is so idiosyncratic by the standard of contemporaries, so downright odd and distinctive, but it seems to me very, very difficult to believe that it was not authorial. Um, people, other writers, did not use semicolons like Defoe. I mean, I can only say that as a matter of impression. I've read lots and lots of early 18th century prose, and the punctuation of Defoe's uh, novels, of of those narratives, whilst using certain conventions of the time, colons did different things, in 18th century prose from what they do now, is absolutely, I I think, unique and therefore, I think, authorial. But it's a case to be proved, I think. Thank you. How does the chapterless novel, or this segmentation of the novel, affect our perception or experience of time? Okay. That's a really good question. I mean, um, well, I, I have two thoughts in answer to that. Um, the first is that um, the time 
Time as represented in a novel is often, especially if the novelist is skillful, closely connected to the reader's experience of real time. So, you know, one of the, simply, one of, the, one of the commonest uses for chapters is simply to allow the, the, the reader to stop reading. Um, and there's a big difference, isn't there, between a novel and a novella in that you cannot... Most cases, you cannot really read a novel all in one go. To me, a novella is a narrative that you can, if you choose, read in one go. I know people will say, I stayed up all night to finish this novel. Um, uh, and I know that happens. But even then, they're probably saying, not I started reading it and I read the whole thing um, in a single night. But they just couldn't stop as they normally would. So that sense of it's time to stop is, part, is absolutely essential to how we read novels. And it seems to me it's, something, it's one of those actually rather practical things that literary critics, especially academic literary critics, often completely ignore. There's very little on this. How you divide a novel up. So without any divisions you're sort of abandoned. You have to decide. You have to decide how you're going to align, as it were, your time with the novel's time. And, you know, uh, um, skillful novelists in the past have used chapters to divide things into, into, as it were, consumable units. Henry Fielding, the great 18th century novelist, would sometimes say at the end of the chapter, okay, well, my characters have stopped at an inn and they're going to be going to sleep. And you can do the same now. We have a little pause and then we'll start again tomorrow. <laughs> um, uh, in Jane Austen novels, in Gothic novels, characters sometimes fall asleep at the end of one chapter and wake up at the beginning of another. So without this, you have to make up your own time. And that's a very potentially disorientating, but also maybe potentially kind of liberating thing. So it abandons you to, I think Knausgaard says it really well, that, that in some ways you're, it's always here and now. You're always in the here and now. And, and too long an answer, I know, but finally I'll just say we, in, def, in, in the case of both Defoe and Knausgaard, what that gives you a strong sense of is not events having taken place in the past, but of a narrator, of a narrator finding his way, whether it's Crusoe or Knausgaard himself, finding his way through events and memories. And you're constantly aware of the activity of the narrator in the present. So that's what chapterlessness does. It makes you aware of the present tense of narration. Here's a, a different view, quite a fun question. Uh -huh. Are novelists aware that some readers skip the very factual passages where there's a surfeit of details? Is a good reader allowed to do so? Beware, beware. <laughs> uh, I don't know if... Um, I've no idea if uh, either of those two writers I've just mentioned were aware of the possibility. I think... Uh, as many readers of Knausgaard will confirm, even if they find it strange and perplexing, it's actually the detail which is somehow gripping. With Crusoe, you're, you're assembling his world with him, and it's, it's fantastic. And you may say, oh, it's unliterary, it's very prosaic, it's, it's, it's list-like sometimes, but actually you're, you're, you're gripped by it. 
I would say that um, with many novelists, the bits you might be tempted to skip are sometimes dangerous to skip. Let me give you one favorite example. In Jane Austen's novel, Emma, um, readers, many readers will know that some of the most trivially, trivially fact-filled elements are the monologues of the garrulous and witless Miss Bates, who records, who re remembers and then uh, narrates all the most trivial incidents of that day in the village or town of Highbury where they all live. And everybody's bored to tears by her. And you might be too, and you might skip. Perhaps the first time I read Emma, I skipped. But when you go back to it, you realise that in all her trivial details, it's like the boring servant in a in a Agatha Christie, who actually says things which are the clue, the clue to what's really gone on. And so it is with Miss Bates in Emma. If you actually listen to what she says, you might be able to work out what's secretly going on between some of the characters. If you are too bored and ignore it, you won't. Thank you very much. Thank you for a really interesting lecture and for um, taking so many questions. I was interested and kept you too long, I think. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll finish up now. Thank you to the audience for your attendance. And I wanted to alert you to Professor Mullen's next lecture, which will be on crime in fiction. He'll be presenting that on Wednesday, the 24th of February next year. And just another uh, alert for you. Tomorrow evening, Gillian Darley will, will be speaking on John Evelyn, Britain's first environmentalist. So please do join us for that. Thank you. <laughs>